Hello, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Locally Sourced. This is Allison, your host, your creator, your one-person show. Uh, welcome, and today we have on the show our really good friend, or my really good friend, if you know him. I'm sure he's really one of your good friends as well. Eddie Brophy, welcome. Well, thank you. Wait, wait to put the pressure on me for uh, well, for those listening who are like, ah. I don't really like him that much. He's okay. Welcome to the world of podcasting and, you know, uh, very fickle uh, software that cuts out on you and trying to figure out how to turn a wave into an MP3. And Yeah, you know, it's thanks to YouTube, I think we can do everything. I've also learned how to build porches on YouTube, how to make crafts and how to bake, how to run a podcast successfully. And I saw a book, I said, how to Facebook for dummies. I, it, business is booming for, for them right now. It, it's It's been good. 2020 has been a good year for them. But, you know, so, like I said, um, thanks to 2020, I actually probably wouldn't be doing this. I'd probably be busy running around working nine to five hustle. Um, 2020 has really brought out the creativeness in me and just finding a hobby that I would really want to stick to. Um, as I mentioned in my first podcast, you know, thanks to the coronavirus, I have time to like really think about life, take time to walk around Stoneham and just reflect on what's around me rather than just running down the street and running errand because I gotta, I'm on lunch break. So I'm sure you totally understand just finding time to fill as we're inside for most of the day. Oh, I mean, I, I've been sort of in COVID mode before COVID. Uh, as a stay-at-home dad, I've been doing this two years now. I've been a stay-at-home dad you you've got to fill that time because if you are not coming up with creative hobbies or just interesting things to do with your kids uh, you, insanity it's pure insanity you will slowly but surely fall into a pit of both despair and insanity unlike anything you could possibly imagine so it's been it, it's definitely been interesting um especially when we were in lockdown and i you know probably up until i want to say june wasn't leaving the house at all not even to go to the store because that was when we were doing like Amazon Fresh and Peapod and stuff like that. Um, just, yeah, going online and trying to come up with stuff. Uh, my wife was getting boxes mailed to the house of like uh, arts and crafts type stuff to do with the kids. And, you know, that's when the Play-Doh would come out and you're just, you're making, you're stacking, you're making towers out of plastic cups and those little Dixie cups in your bathroom. And you're just, yeah, you're in it, man. And you're just trying to make the most of it. And I, I think there's a lot of, businesses, a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people that have an entrepreneurial spirit that they didn't know about. And for many of us, I think as much as it sucks being out of work and being unemployed, it's given us an opportunity to kind of find ourselves and find our creative side or our business side or entrepreneurship side and just say, hey, you know, I never had time for this stuff. So let me start it now. Um, but the little difference with Eddie on the show is Eddie's been writing for how long now? Oh God. Um, so trying to write professionally, like trying to get published about 20 years. So I started submitting stuff to magazines and publications right out of high school. Cause I was in, um, for any of your local listeners who might remember Mr. Riley, I took a creative writing class with him. And the funny thing with him was how many people were trying to talk me out of taking that guy's class. So the late Mr. Riley, for those of you who don't know, he was a very, very earnest, a very um, brilliant, but a very scary man at times. And that was just because he, he held his students to a certain standard, which, I mean, 
when you're a kid, you kind of look at him like, ah, oh, that guy. But as you get older, you, you appreciate it. And I remember even my, one of my favorite people on the planet, uh, Mrs. Burnham was like, I don't know if you want to take that class. Eddie. I think he's going to eat you alive. And the funny thing was, I, I took the class with him and he loved me. Like he loved my work. He even admitted to a, a girl I was dating at the time that he would um, type up the uh, names of my stories in search engines because he was like, no, nah, there's no way this kid wrote this. And it was what he told my girlfriend at the time. He's like, you know, I really think Eddie should try to get published. And it was that endorsement. I mean, granted, it was through a third party, but it was that endorsement that when I graduated from high school, I started buying uh, Poets and Writers magazine, Writer's Digest. I started, you know, now mind you, I was making $8 an hour staining furniture. So at the same time, I was going to Barnes and Noble with like a notebook and scribbling the names of like magazine. And this is before smartphones, ladies and gentlemen. So this took commitment on my part. And like sitting down with a $40, like, I know Writer's Digest puts it out of here for poets and for writers and stuff. They're different, or different books about like that thick and it's just a directory of magazines and agents and stuff like that and thinking I was committing a crime like it was like my version of Napster like I was stealing like bar I, I wasn't rightfully paying for the book I was just stealing names out of the book so and then I'd go home and you know I'd write some poetry and again this is before the internet was was popping as they say so you know you would actually have to do it like snail mail so i you know, here I was making eight dollars an hour trying to buy these like magazines that go for like 10 bucks a pop or these big books that go for like 40 bucks. And then you got to you got to spend money on postage, man. And as, as we know, as adults, because now that we're all adults, you know, we're not blowing our money on stuff like we used to. Now, when we, we got to mail stuff, you're spending ten dollars on that book of stamps, man. And you're thinking, damn. So, yeah, it was a lot of commitment, a lot of money and a lot of rejection. And I. I actually gave it up at 19 because, you know, by 19, within a year, I had received so many rejections. I literally, I could have like wallpapered my entire condo with them. So I kind of got discouraged. And then it wasn't until I turned 23, 24 that I just, I found that passion to write again. And I started back up and, you know, at that time I was in junior college and, you know, they had a literary magazine. So I, I, I shot, you know, I want to say I shot a few poems over, but it's more like I dumped like 11 poems in the submission box and thought, excuse me, I thought like, there's no way they can reject me. Like I thought the more, it was almost like playing the lottery. The more I submitted, the less likely I was to be rejected, which one of the, one of the people that worked on the staff of that magazine actually made a comment like, how are we going to reject you, Eddie? You know, so. Like, man, just give this guy a cookie, give him a participant badge, like. You know, he doesn't have to win, but give him a little badge that says, I participated or something for all you've done. And that's, you know, um, as you get older, you realize how much work it actually takes to achieve your dream. And then when people read your book as a published author, they're like, man, I can't believe you just wrote a book and became published. So, you know, there's this songwriter, this rapper, and he's like, in one of his lyrics, like, you know, you think this rapper is new or this artist is new, but he's actually been at it for years. And it's so true because I can finally use my line right now. I can finally do it. I've been saying this <laughs> since I got published. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I, I've been dying to drop that LO Cool J lyric ever since I got published. And I just haven't found the right chance until right now. That perfect line in, you know, LO Cool J speaks to all of us especially us 90 kids with our Jinko jeans. But 
in all honesty, I mean, you, as long as I've known you, you've had those little notebooks and I definitely gifted you a pack of 10 for your birthday. And I, you know, I, there wasn't a day where I didn't see you utilizing those notebooks, even during school, I saw you in the hallways writing in the notebooks and just in general, I think when you think about people who become famous for their art, just, you know, we have to think how much work has went into it. It didn't just happen overnight. As I say, success doesn't happen overnight. It takes time and hard work. And, you know, with all those rejections, was there really one that just stood out to you and said, hey, I don't think I can do this. This is the one piece of um, writing I really wanted to be published and, you know, they rejected me, so I give up. You know, um, well, I appreciate that you think I'm famous because, you know, <laughs> in my own mind, maybe. Um, actually, believe it or not, it was for this book. So. I had originally, so I wrote this book. I started it in 2017. I finished it in the summer of 2018. Um, so then immediately after, cause I'm one of those people, like I get really, I'm really fearful of being irrelevant. Like if I write something, I have to submit it like immediately. And I give myself like a time frame for it before I like shelve it. Cause I'm like, if they don't take it by this date it's going to be so archaic, so out of date, just so antiquated. Like I got to move on. Like I'm one of those people. I just, I got to move on. I got to do something new. I can't, I can't just, you know, I, nothing to get nostalgic. About. I can't get nostalgic about stuff. I can't just sit on something. Um, so I got to move on. So with this, I had submitted it to like over 200 agents. And the thing, if you're, if you're planning to be a writer, here's the thing, Write because you love to write, not because you think it's going to make you famous, because the one thing that you cannot be in this world is arrogant. And I, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of writers, maybe, who knows, who hear this and like, uh-uh, worst advice ever. But I've been, I, I took classes with a lot of really arrogant writers. Now, mind you, when I was in junior college, I was like Billy Madison. Like, they were all like 18 or 19. I was like mid-20s, but... I, there was a lot of hubris in it. And there was a lot of like, oh, you know, man, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to write my book. I'm going to cash in. I'm going to. And it was just so funny because I'm 20 at the time. I was like 24, 25 sitting there almost offended. Like, I'm glad you think it's that easy. Um, so when I was submitting to agents, the thing with that is you're lucky to get a rejection because nine times out of 10, they, don't, they just don't give back to you. Because there's things in the publishing world called the slush pile. And when you submit something to an agent, basically your manuscript sits in a pile of other unread manuscripts. And that's the slush pile. And it's basically like, you know, oh, have you checked the slush pile for anything? Maybe something's in there. So that accounts for why you don't hear from most agents. But the agents I did hear from, I, I got two rejections. One was you're not doing enough sh um, showing. You're doing too much telling. You need to do more showing, less telling. I was kind of like, okay, like fair enough. And then, and this happened, so I wasn't really like, this one didn't come out of nowhere because I had been told this with my previous two manuscripts was, I just couldn't connect to the characters. I, I, they just couldn't resonate with me. And I tried not to take, get offended or take it personally because you know, as they always say in their rejection emails, it's an, it's an objective business. You know, we're not rejecting you because we think that you suck. <laughs> we're rejecting you because it's just not our taste. 
but the big thing was, so I had written two books. I had written a horror anthology. And before that, I had written a, um, a, a kind of like a sci-fi superhero story type thing. And with both stories, the agent that, and that's the other thing. So when an agent does get back to you, it doesn't work like, wow, this sounds like an amazing idea. I'm going to sign you. They'll request a few pages. So like, they'll say like, oh, can you send me over like three to five pages? And if they like your three to five pages, then they'll request a full manuscript. So I got two full manuscript requests, which is like a big deal. And I was like, oh my God. And it was taking months for the one guy. But both of them got back to me and they're like, yeah, I just can't relate to your characters. But then they both wound up not being agents anymore, like months after rejecting me. So I also realized too, that the publishing industry itself, like any industry, it's a lot of, it's a lot of hard work. It's very fickle. I mean, I worked in radio for close to six years and I remember like within the third year I was in radio realizing, oh, I got to go to college. This isn't going to work. So there, it just, that's how industries are like that. And if you're an agent and you sign, you know, X amount of authors and they put out their books and they're not like juggernauts, you know, if they're not selling like off the shelves, that falls on the agent as much as it falls on the writer. So with agents, they tend to be very, very particular about what they'll take on because ultimately their investment in you, you know, puts their reputation on the line. And, you know, kind of like in Hollywood, well, if you're an actor and you've done like four or five, you know, just terrible movies in a row, you know, you're not going to get those those casting calls for, for newer roles because they're just going to look at you and be like, man, that guy is bad luck. We don't want him in any of these movies. So the world writing is a lot like that. So for me, it was the rejection that really put me over was just like, all right, I can't write relatable characters. And then the book comes out. And the number one thing that I've been hearing from the few people who I know have read have been like, oh my God, dude, your character's so relatable. What do I know? You know, and that's the thing. That's why you you kind of, you just have to trust your own process. You have to trust, you have to trust your creative intuition. You have to trust yourself because at the end of the day, you know, you know your art and you know your work better than anyone else's. And that's, and that's tough to do because the thing about most writers and artists is they're all introverted. They're all neurotic as hell. And none of them, for the most part, a lot of them don't have any self-esteem. So you're kind of at the tender mercies of these people who are supposed to know more than you and be kind of more seasoned in the, in the industry than you are. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you said that about your characters, um, I think just in general, my history and knowledge of your book and being one of the first people reading the book, that's what really got me liking the book was the characters because, um, you know, as you mentioned in your one of your recordings, one of your podcasts, that the characters are kind of based off people you knew. And I was like, man, that Tasha, I know exactly who that is, or I know who she, what mixture of people he combined to make that character. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes, sometimes us as creators create something just to create, but then when you get to a point and you're like, you take a break and you kind of look and reflect and you write something like your book and it has more meaning to what you've been doing and just, um, it's time to write something meaningful and be truthful about who I am. That's when people are like, okay, he's in it. He's in it for just himself he's in it for the craft and not for the cash money or the fame maybe will come with it but you can tell in his writing he's more humbled by it and he's just telling a story because he wants to tell it 
And if four people read the story or five million people read the story, he's okay with it. Now, can I give you the most pretentious answer that you'll probably hear? Honest to God, when I was writing the story, I didn't have an agenda. I, I had, and it's funny because, you know, when I'm on Instagram, I don't, the thing with having social media for me is there were two things I didn't want it to become. A, I didn't want to become like a snake oil salesman. I didn't want to only have social media to try and plug and sell my book because then I'd feel way too disingenuous if I'm tracking down people from high school who I genuinely want to talk to and who I haven't been in touch with and I want to get, reconnect with. Well, also, yeah, like I have a book. I'm very proud of it. I mean, to be honest with you, a lot of the people I've been talking to on social media or I've been reaching out to, admittedly, I've been reaching out to them because, you know, I think I, I said it in a blog or basically I kind of consider my life as a mosaic of so many other lives because in my lifetime, I'm sure maybe like yours and a lot of other people, I've encountered such an eclectic group of individuals over the course of my life who I genuinely whether I knew you for 20 years or 20 seconds, that fleeting amount of time or that, you know, cultivated, well-refined relationship, it still means something to me. So when I sat down and started writing the book, there was an, there was a, an architecture to it, sure. Like there was a blueprint to it, but, and again, this is the pretentious part. Man, the book kind of wrote itself. Like it was just one of those things where like certain characteristics were coming out and certain characters were manifesting and certain situations were happening where I didn't sit down and intentionally say like, oh, I want to write, I want to write Tasha or I want to write this scene or I want to do that. It was like, okay, so I, I kind of have a little bit of background material in my head. Let's just see what comes of it. If it's interesting, great. If it's garbage, whatever, we'll, we'll just try to make it work. Like the last thing I'd want to feel like as a writer is that people would read something and feel like, oh, he just shoehorned that in. Like I know, especially too, because there's a, a part in the book where the author acknowledges that one of the gentlemen at the speaking engagement was wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. That wasn't like my political agenda being shoehorned into the book. When I started writing it, was initially when a lot of the stuff that's happening right now with the social unrest, that's when it was all sort of fresh and new and kind of going on. And that was 2017. So I didn't know how much of a part that was gonna, and let me just apologize for all the background noise. My little gremlin is up and walking around and just ripping the house apart while I'm pacing around with my laptop and probably making out some videos. But no, there was just a lot of stuff that I threw in that was probably resonating somewhere in my subconscious just as much as I wanted to incorporate or tie in a lot of things that were happening in the world and how they could be somewhat apropos of this of this character's story. Right on. And I, you know, I think as an author, you take whatever's going on around you and you kind of write about it because it's your journal, not just it's written for everyone else, but it's ideally like a journal for yourself to say, this is how I feel about certain things. And this is my creative outlook on how I'm going to manage and reflect on these things. And, you know, just reading the book alone, for me, knowing you so well and growing up with you and being really good friends, it's kind of like you were just telling me a story as we sat and grab a coffee for maybe five hours straight. But, um, you know, it's it read in a sense of it was coming straight from honesty, but also with creativeness. Um, just the scenes, I felt like I was literally there because I knew of the locations. It's 
ideally, I'm guessing based off Stoneham, certain areas of Stoneham, uh, you, you know, you should do like a creamer life tour like when he does on the bus um you could say hey this is where you know this took place in the book and this is where this took place and this is characters based on this person who used to live here but you know that you know what's great about that analogy though is that i'm glad that i got the, the deal i got with the publication because as you remember kramer would take those tours and then he sold his life story to elaine's boss and he was trying to do the tour and they're like Kramer, you can't tell those stories anymore. They don't belong to you. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I think, you know, it's awesome because if you're from Stoneham and you know Eddie really well, or even for 20 seconds, you know that he he really enjoys his life, his hometown, and the way he grew up and just took lessons from it and put it in his book and said, you know, this is my family, or if it's based off his family or just pieces of his family, but it gives that hometown feeling, something you can relate to and something you can kind of read and also visualize in your mind that, you know, Gigi Rock or, you know, under his house in the basement, just chilling or the Ouija board at the neighbor's houses, you can visualize that because you, I, we grew up with it. Um, so it gives that hometown feeling as you read a book which is really cool and I'm getting nostalgic, but maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just- You know what I, what I should past. have done and where, where I failed as a local author, I never wrote about Legends of Superheroes 3. It, it should have, it's a sin that I didn't do it. I, I did write about the video store and Super Stop and Shop. And I can't remember what the name of it was. Was it Stoneham Sports Center? Was that the name of the place we used to go? And I am, like, I don't remember. All I remember is getting my concert ticket to that Strawberries. Oh, I, I'll go. I'll do you better. I remember when it was coconuts. Oh, jeez. Caldors. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of... So, a lot of the narrative, you know, it was working out some really deep, dark... And there's a, there's a lot of darkness in it. But, yeah, I'm glad that you also picked up on the fact that, you know, I moved to Stoneham in the summer of 1994. And I only know this because one of the first places my sisters and I went to was Andrea's Pizza. And I... I the relevance of this is because when I walked into Andrew's Pizza, I knew this was going to be my favorite pizza joint because they used to have a framed poster of the movie The Shadow. And immediately walked in and saw that and was like, oh, this town's going to be great. And it was just one of those things where like, I, I wanted to keep that sense of, I don't know. So if the book is anything, I wanted to keep the sense of wonder that I had when I first moved here. And then kind of have the sense of like indignation as you get older and as you know, you kind of struggle to find your place and where you live. And then to come back as an adult and say like, you know what, like, this is where I'm from. These, these are the people I know. I apologize for my one-year-old going nuts here. But these are the people I know. These were my friends. These were the people I grew up with. This is the town I grew up in. You know, no matter what happened, with these people or this town, it's still such a tremendous part of who I am and where I went and what I became that in a lot of ways, yeah, it's it's a it's a tribute to Stoneham as much as it is just me working out, like, you know, the not so great aspects of life and that struggle to, you know, to fit into Stoneham and to kind of figure out like, okay, how does a weirdo like me, how does this, you know, grungy looking, because I remember when I was younger and like, I was like trying to make the the anti-fashion statement where I'd be walking around because, you know, at that age, you're so desperate for identity. And it's like a Madonna scenario. 
like you just try on different identities just to see, okay, which one is going to stick this time? Which one's going to be the closest version to whatever the hell or whoever the hell I am? And for me, that was like when I got into grunge music and Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. So I'd be walking around like this tattered, like Freddy Krueger sweater. And I'd have friends' parents like driving by me being like, oh my God, should we donate some clothes to him? Like, does he not have like shirts? And you know, that was, it's all about at that age, you're trying to find your identity. And weirdly by being the anti, I don't know, the, the anti-fashion statement or like the weirdo in town, I had found my identity strangely enough. And that was, that was, that was cool. Like a lot of people, I'm 33 now. I have kids as you can see me trying to do your podcast and do the super dad job in the background. But, you know, as a 33 year old looking back and thinking like, there's that, that mix of like, you know, who people remember me? Like, did I have an identity? Like, and then I would talk to a few people after the book came out and they'd start sending me pictures and like things that I don't even, I don't remember being there. I don't remember like having a sense of self and then thinking like, oh, okay. So I, I kind of did have this identity with these people. So it's been really cool to be able to like, I don't know, it's a sense of pride in like getting to show them like, hey, remember how I was always like doodling in notebooks and, you know, scribbling lyrics and talking about how I was going to play Woodstock one day. Well, you know, I, I, I never made it to Woodstock, but hey, I have a book and not like I, I expect anyone to care, like, but there is a, a feeling of, you know, if you grew up with certain people and people who knew you well or people who knew you in passing, like kind of like just this fulfillment of like, oh, he always said he was going to do that. And look, he did it because now you have this, this responsibility. I feel that if you're somebody who worked really hard and like just really chased after a dream and you accomplished it, I kind of feel like you have a responsibility to encourage other people to do the same thing no matter how big or small to just kind of tell them like, look, man, it may take 20 years. It may take 20 minutes, but it's worth it just to see what you can, what you can accomplish just by trying. No, totally. I think, you know, now with everybody kind of having more time to themselves, they're starting to rediscover who they used to be or who they were before kids. Cause they're like, Hey, I want to get creative or, hey, I want to start this podcast, or I want to do this YouTube channel. Um, maybe they're not hoping to become famous, but just something to, as an outlet to express themselves, because we don't get the chance to, you know, socially interact with everybody all the time like we used to. Um, and, you know, when you have more time to yourself, you get to reflect on your past, your childhood, and just the things you really enjoyed. And for you, I... I know for sure you enjoyed writing, you enjoyed blogging, you enjoyed just journaling. And to see that come alive as an adult is awesome. You know, I'm only one year older, but you know, just saying I'm proud of you is definitely something I like to say often and maybe I don't say it enough, but you know, we both grew up with those geeky kids who love to play Power Rangers and just see you become what you always wanted to be even though it took maybe 30 years is I'm a amazing. power ranger you're still a power you're still the red one and I'll, of course I, <laughs> I, I did it well you were always the green one so I yeah. you know I, I kind of thought I had to settle for red because here's the thing you got to be the power ranger with the dagger and the cool shield 
I was like, oh, cool. I got pew, pew. Nice. That's okay. Because you know what? Pew, pews are very popular these days. Um, We get the Mandalorian. You know, everyone likes the pew, pews. There's, but, you know, I think. I I like how you're making it sound like it's like a, like a substance. Like, it is. Oh, you got those pew, pews, man. Yeah, I pick up those pew, pews in the corner. um, Warren in Maine. Um, (laughs) It'll be in a rap song soon enough, you know. (laughs) No, I mean, it's. It's humbling. It's weird. And again, like I'm still the same nobody that I've been for 20, however many years. And the, the funny thing is, is like when people say like, oh, I'm proud of you. It, now, if you read the book, you're going to realize I didn't come from the most demonstrative <laughs> family in the world. So, but for me, it's, it's not that I don't like hearing it. It's just, it's so weird to hear because I'm not used to hearing it. And yeah, honestly, no, I hear you. And uh, the other part of it too, is when and this goes for anybody. If anybody says differently, they're lying to you. But I feel like everybody wants to do something that not so much just impresses others, but impresses others to the point where that knowing that person or when that person does good or when that person, yeah. you know, is kind of like, I don't know, when they're a figurehead for, you know, hard work and, you know, a decent moral compass and what. Or just somebody who might, as well, might not have been, had their, their life together, and they've made their mistakes, and they've crashed and burned. But, you know, there's this thing about, in like Hollywood, how, oh, we love to build them up and bring them back down. I kind of feel the opposite. It's like, I, to an extent, I think we do live in that kind of world. But I, I feel like in, from a community sense, every community loves a good, um, you know, success story as much as they also love like a good redemption arc story. You know what I mean? Like, cause- Yeah, yeah. You went from the kid who walked the streets of Stoneham that like the flash and all Freddy Krueger outfit and the flannels to holes in his converse to the kid who's like, hey, check out my book. Um, you know, even if you're just telling 10 people, it's exciting because it's like, man, I knew that kid. He was the long haired Jesus walking down Maine and look at him now, he's the long haired Jesus writing on a typewriter or a computer. So it's, you know, it's just like you said, I think we all just want to do something sometimes to make ourselves say, hey, look, I did change. And Right, well, especially from a community sense, I mean, I'll be honest with you, um, my relationship with Stoneham has always been ambivalent. Like most kids that are growing up in a town where they kind of feel like they're the outsider. But as an adult living in this community with my own kids, you know, who wouldn't want to have their community like truly be proud of them and accept them and think like, oh, wow, and he's got kids and look at his kids. And you know what I mean? Like, look, my wife's a nurse. So I have a lot that I have to make up for because, you know, as she likes to put all the time, well, no matter what, I'm getting into heaven because I'm a nurse. And like, it's true. She like, I will open the gate for you and be like, hey, let him in. He's yeah, okay. There, there won't be a gate as much as there'll be like a little trap door somewhere. A little, a little doggy door that swings open and high hopes he can figure it out how to get in and out. But yeah, I mean, I think what that's what I love about this idea of you doing this podcast is you're giving people a platform and an opportunity to not just discuss their projects but to discuss you know why is it so important to both them but also in the sense of like sharing it with their community and for me it was look I know I know who I am and I know what I was so to come from where I came from and be able to have two children who again I am so sorry for your inaugural episode to just have all these background noise of pots and pans and everything else um but to be a father and to, you know, have a wife who works in healthcare and, you know, 
there is a sense in, in a responsibility that you feel like, you know, you really want to show the world, like not only creatively, you know, have I been somewhat, you know, modestly successful, but, you know, as a person, like, I just, I want to, I want to belong to this community. I want to belong to this town because I want to show my kids, you know, how great this town is and what it, what the town has to offer them, but also what they should offer in return to the town. And, it's, you know, it's it's funny you say that because it's like the only famous people who come here from maybe we could say, hey, you're Nancy Kerrigan or um, I don't even know any other famous people out of Stoneham. Josh Gondelman, who made it big. Yeah, yeah. But, Josh. you know, it's funny. I don't have social media, so I don't really know. I didn't even know he was famous until I hopped on social media. I'm like, oh, that kid, he's awesome. He was on all the drama stuff. That makes total sense. So he's another one though that that guy my now I didn't know Josh and I didn't know his sister very well though I graduated with her. But the thing I can say with Josh, that guy has a work ethic because I remember all I remember was it was called internal bleeding. <laughs> my headphones are like so I can't really. But um, I think it was like a one man show. I just remember seeing the poster for it and his face was on the poster and it was like handmade <laughs> and thinking like holy crap that guy's got his own one man show now. Like he was just that guy that like. He he worked his butt off. So I mean, yeah. Again, I don't know him very well. The the few encounters I had with him were very very pleasant. Um, I think one encounter he looked at me and I kind of looked at him like, "What are you looking at?" And he's pointing <laughs> He's like, "Oh, I was just looking at your chucks." I was just like, "Oh, okay." I was looking at my converse, <laughs> but not like very sweet guy. I've actually, you know, I listened to he did a podcast. Um, Andy Richter, um, Conan O'Brien's uh, secondhand man. Okay. He did a podcast with Andy Richter, which that's worth checking out. Um. Where he actually, he talks about his life growing up in Stoneham and stuff. And it's really fascinating because for me, it's more or less like, I mean, not even so much famous people, but like even on Instagram, like seeing these people, like I, I joke to my wife a lot. I'm like, when did everyone become real estate agents? <laughs> I'm like, I, I went away for social media for two years and I come back and literally everyone's a real estate agent. Did I miss the job fair? Like what happened? <laughs> But, Which is yeah. cool, you know, I mean, I think for people our age and people we graduated with, we're not those nine to five people anymore. We don't want to be held down by um, a boss who's like, you know, hey, can you come in for a meeting on Saturday? We really want to just make our name for ourselves, be our own boss and have that entrepreneur like talent say, hey, I want to be my own boss and make a name for myself. I don't want to have to be tied down to um, someone saying, you know, hey, you're going to come in on Sunday. I, you know, I think that's just who we are, our mentality in coming from a small town where we have to make a name for ourselves or just find our own way is part of Stoneham. And I'm noticing a lot of people from Stoneham who went to high school, whether it was a grade above me or below me, are starting to find that entrepreneur love. And I think just our generation is looking to get away from wearing a suit and tie to the office um, and sitting in traffic instead where we have our morals set on family and work to life balance and just finding ourselves to be more independent and working hard for ourselves. Well, bear in mind too, because we are children of the nineties, we were kind of the tail end of the latchkey kid generation. <laughs> yeah. So that was the thing. If you had one or two working parents, they, for the most part, they were never home. Like I remember having um, friends who had a, you know, a single parent 
who you never saw them and the, and the kid was kind of left to their own devices. And I think that helped with both the intuition, but I also think that's what also kind of led to the detriment of like depression and a lot of the stuff you're seeing people struggle with now is because, you know, the parent had to, had to survive first and foremost, they, they had to make the money. And I think a lot of us grew up around that, seeing that and going, well, I don't want to be that. Like if I have kids, I want to be there for my kids. And the only way to kind of do that is really to, to become an entrepreneur and to go to work for yourself and to kind of be your own boss and figure out, okay, what's the best way to do this for me? I mean, at some point, I'm going to have to go back into the working world, you know, provide, provided uh, my book doesn't you know, take off. But I live in the realistic world. So, but, you know, it, it's fun. It's fun, you know, being acknowledged as a local writer and as a, as a local uh, artist and all that. But. No, I mean, I, I give a lot of credit to these people that even if they work, you know, their conventional nine to five to still have the energy and to still have the the ambition to have a side hustle, to raise their families, to to be, you know, super husband, super wife. Like it, it does. It speaks volumes about our generation. And like the one thing I cannot stand about our generation is we're like the middle child generation between <laughs> Gen X and, you know, uh, Gen Y or Gen Z and you know, everything gets blamed on millennials. And it's like, I swear to God, if you have one more person blaming millennials, it's like, do you know what a millennial is? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when you talk about generations, I think when I was graduating to college, you know, you not graduating, graduating high school and people are like, oh, where are you going to college? You needed a college to tell them. If you were telling them, oh, I'm going into a trade or I want to open my own business or people kind of, were like, well, I don't know if that's such a great idea. And then you, you it know, wasn't a like, sure thing. Yeah. yeah, they're like, don't major in writing, don't major in painting, major in business, economics, major in marketing. So, you know, it's different now because we see everyone, those people who all the rules are kind of stuck with it and said, all right, I guess I'll major in economics and kind of going off on their own now and utilizing their degree, but to a point where they're starting their own companies and just kind of following what they wanted to follow from the beginning. Now, like, you know, if you told someone back then, I'm going to major writing, they'd kind of look at you like, what? Oh, they still do look at me like that. <laughs> but the difference is, I think people figured out that... <clears throat> The old guard wasn't necessarily a sure thing, especially right. when the economy. Now, keep in mind, we're, we're a generation. Allison, we have lived through two recessions now. <laughs> and that was the thing. Coming out of high school, I, I came into and I, I went into broadcasting school and college during a recession. I came out of college. I, I graduated with my master's. I was 29 when I, when I got my master's. I'm 29. I was 29 with a master's and I was still coming into another recession. <laughs> So, and I, I joke to people all the time because, you know, I had a, fr a friend who was like, oh, how's it going? I, you know, as good as it would for anyone living in a pandemic that laid off millions of people and you're looking for work. So, you know, if it wasn't hard yeah. enough before. So I do think that's probably a lot of the logic behind it. And it, like, I, I joke about the real estate agent thing, but that's probably the motivation for it is that you can, you can be a self-made person. And I think there's a lot more people have seen to have more of an affinity for being a self-made person now because we've realized like okay well if i go work in that office nine to five what happens when my job gets outsourced or what happens right, when right. you know so I, I i think that's a great thing especially seeing it in stoneham with people i know 
And it's like, oh man, like I, I'd be scared to death to run a business, you know, but they're making it work. They're figuring it out. And I, yeah, I, I've seen a lot of people too during this pandemic who, you know, didn't know that they had a certain talent or a certain creative interest who are tapping into it. And now it's kind of become, as you put a side hustle for some people, it's actually becoming like, nope, this is my new career goal now. Right. And I think, you know, we're discovering that like, hey, this side hustle, people actually enjoy it. Like, whether it be making masks, doing pottery, like that, that new pottery place that opened on Main Street. Well, I, Who I, would I have thought that that'd be so popular? I mean, I'm not artistic or creative, but even me, I'm like, hey, you know what? I want to go make a bowl. But I think, you know, I people are craving ways to showcase their talent. And they want to give everyone else the opportunity to find their talent. You know, when I think about high schools these days and the education kids are getting, it's kind of a shame they're getting rid of trades and automotive and electric and so forth. And you have to actually go to a trade school. But, um, you know, why put ahead classes like history, math and so forth, which is extremely important, but take away from the creative classes of creative writing um you know tv production or radio production um for those kids who don't get a's in history these trades need to be back in the schools and i think it's important because if they didn't have it someone like you maybe would have just ended up staying at blockbuster being a manager not that that's wrong but sometimes you know we want more than life and well i think need i get to be you're... introduced to it I see where you, which is basically reaching your own fullest potential, like your personal potential, as opposed to just getting complacent because, well, I have job security. And yeah. I know, I, I agree with that. Like, it, in, you know, everybody's going to have their own take on that. Everybody's going to have their own outlook on that. My thing has personally been like, hey, like, I just want to make a living. If I can do it, doing something I love, fantastic. Um, but even if I can't, to just still adhere to the creative stuff and say like okay well i'm gonna work because i got kids and i have a wife and you know we'd love to buy a house one day so like i'll do the conventional nine to five thing but you know and i say this to writers too because it's a guarantee if you're a writer even if you published a book now i have a book out i have a book out and i still need to find a real job that's the thing too is like i i want to encourage people like hey if you want to be a writer and you want to write a book do it but do it because you want to do it. Don't do it because you think like, I'm going to write a book and then tomorrow I'm going to be J.K. Well, bad example. I'm going to be Stephen King. I mean, she was poor and did make it <laughs> well, become I'm just a millionaire. I, no, no, I totally understand what you're yeah. saying though. You know, it's true. Like any craft or anything, it takes time. It takes being humble and humility and patience is what's the toughest piece. Um, and that's the same case too. If you own like a, a consignment shop or you own yeah. a, a pottery shop, look, it's going to take time before eventually you're, you're going to turn a profit. I mean, pretty much like, and I work for some small business owners and you know, I, I kind of pick their brains a little bit. Like how long, do, like, I'd always wonder like, how long does it take? And like, what? So you, you know, you actually make money and you're not just keeping the lights on. Like, yeah, it takes, I think the moral to all of it is it, it just, it takes time. But if it's something that you're willing to, to suffer for because you love it, it's absolutely worth it in the end to try it. I mean, absolute worst case scenario, Mr. Negativity over here. You start this podcast and nobody listens to it. You tried it. Someone right, opens up right a on. business and it, and it goes under within six months to a year. 
Look, I'm sure financially you're going to feel like, oh, I just took a bath in this. But <laughs> you know what? At the end of the day, though, like I see my thing and I, I don't want to get morbid here because, you know, you got a good thing going. But at my father's service, the only people in attendance for him were the friends and coworkers of me and my sister. Right. My father was not a very gregarious man. He didn't have any friends, really. He had my mother. That was it. He didn't really have a passion that, you know, put him on the map or anything. And I remember taking that personally, thinking like, God, like, they, and, you know, I, I made the mistake of saying it to my mom. She's like, how dare you say that he had no regrets? How do you not have any regrets if like, when you die, no one shows up for you? So that was my, I know it sounds so morbid and TMI and all that, but I guess my thing was, I didn't want to be a person who for a second would think, oh, I'm going to have, I'm going to have so many regrets. I'm sure I'm going to have a, a good, a good few, but I don't want to have as more than that. I, I want to be able to say at the end of the day, like, you know, I tried really hard to be a good parent. I tried really hard to be a good person. You know, I'm, I'm fine if. If people hear this and they're just like, oh, she interviewed that guy, he's okay. I'm okay <laughs> with being okay. Like, I don't need to be a saint because at the end of the day, I'm not. But the one thing that I didn't want people to be able to dis dispute over me is whether or not I actually tried really hard. And I, I think I think a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's something we all want to be remembered for is yeah, we would love to be remembered as a good person. We would love to be remembered for our talents or whatever we brought to the table. But for me personally, it's like, no, nah, I, I think at the end of the day, we should all want to be remembered for taking a chance, you know, not not just getting complacent and saying like, oh, that could never happen. So I can't do that. There's no way that's going to happen. Well, not if, you not, not if you think like that, you know, if you keep telling yourself over and over to your blue in the face, well, I, I can't do that. I can't afford to do that. Why? You know, what does it take to encourage somebody to blog or podcast or start, you know, hand making face masks or <laughs> opening a bookstore, like doing something that makes them happy, but also something where they're like, you know, I've always wanted to do this. And I just, I don't know. I know, I don't know why I was too afraid to try. Right on, right on. I think it's, you know, it's important. And just this podcast in general is giving the people opportunity to get their service known, their whatever they're doing whatever they're passionate about to talk about it. And hopefully if it reaches one or two people, that's two more people, two more customers, and then word of mouth goes out and so forth. Um, so, you know, I just, I'm excited to get this going and excited to hopefully get some guests on it, whether it's just you and this is the last episode, <laughs> that's okay, we did it. Um, so, I you know- have a complex. <laughs> no, it's all your fault, which is cool, but- um, there's the little man. I think, you know, why don't you, uh, uh, you know, above the screaming and yelling, why don't you just give us an overview of your book and let us know where you can grab it and yeah, so anything the, else you want to plug. So the title of the book is Nothing to Get Nostalgic About. You can get it on Amazon. I just keep bringing people to Amazon because originally <laughs> it was available on Target and then it wasn't. People ordered it on Target, didn't, never got it. Now I, I checked Barnes and Noble last night and it was like, the page cannot be found. So I'm like, you know what, Amazon. Amazon Indie Bound. Cause if you, if you go through okay. Indie Bound and you punch in the uh, zip code, it'll find the smaller bookshops that will set, ship it out to you. But um, so that's the book, um, the overview of the book. 
It's about this guy, Charlie Harris, who he's, he's a writer who is about to get this big award. And in the meantime, he's a, he's a new father, but he's, he's just, he's haunted by something. There's something that kind of manifests itself and basically threatens to take his future away from him. So he's forced to go back to where he came from and finally confront the monster that's been haunting him for years. I, I wish I could do a better synopsis. That's all right, man. You know, I, I think it's perfect background noise for what you're telling us to give us a synopsis. It's a nightmare. It's a yeah. horror show. <laughs> but um, thanks for being on the show. And there you yeah. have it, you guys. This is Eddie Brophy, local published author. Nothing to get nostalgic about. Once again, you can grab the book on Amazon. Help a little man out. Help out the underdogs. And if anyone has a local exorcist they want to recommend. <laughs> there you go parents doing the side hustle making it happen doing interviews just like we normally would during quarantine with background noises toys crying oh, this, is, this is all because i wouldn't let them eat a dunkin donuts bag out of the trash so wow what a terrible parent don't read his book because he won't let his kid eat trash yeah just playing everyone um so thanks for being on the show and there you have it nothing to get nostalgic about on locally sourced peace out